The other part is, is at the end of the day, there is a conscious being over there that is making their own decisions and money has no consciousness. There is nothing there. And so it is something that we have contrived and has game theory and rules because we've chosen it. But every single thing that pisses you off about money is something that is about you that you're trying to wrestle with. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. Welcome back to the most hated F word podcast. I am delighted as always for you to be here today. For the new listeners, welcome. And for the listeners who have been here for a while, welcome back. Before we get into this episode, I have a favor. If you've been enjoying this podcast, can you please do me a favor? Head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a review, as those reviews definitely help. Also, if you know someone who might enjoy this podcast, please send them an email. Let them know what we are talking about here at The Most Hated Effort. This week, I talked to Jake Wagner. Jake is the son to Dick Wagner, who is a pioneer, a trailblazer in helping us understand the human side of money. Said another way, our relationships with money or the interior side of money. Unfortunately, a few years ago, Dick passed away, but his legacy is living on. And during this episode, we talk about Dick, his life, his work, and how Jake and his sister Natalie are continuing this critical work and moving forward the What is Phenology project. Dick would be proud. As we discussed in this episode, phenology is a new field of study, a new ology that sits next to sociology, psychology, and economics. It's fascinating, and it's wonderful to see these thought leaders who are creating a new field that helps us make sense of our emotions around money, the interior side of our relationship with money, which then helps us deepen our relationships, not only with our money, but also ourselves. Jake worked alongside Dick to make sure his book, Financial Planning 3.0, was published. Since Dick's passing, Jake has maintained the vision and drive to the project, What is Phenology? Jake has a strong internal understanding of Dick's work. You see this in this episode. And not only does Jake have an understanding of his father's work, but you can see how Jake also has a deep understanding in his own body of work and how he blends that with Dick's work. It's really fascinating to hear how Jake is thinking about this What is Phenology project. Jake is also the founder of a digital marketing company, 4FP, who focuses on CFP professionals. During this conversation, we talk about and discuss what is phenology, why is it important, and how it might even save the planet. I know that might sound like a grandiose statement, but when you listen to the episode, it starts to make sense. I really felt good after this conversation. I appreciated Jake's deep interest for deepening our understanding and awareness of the value exchange that we have with money. I encourage everyone to go check out their website, What is Phenology, the links in the show notes, and see what Jake, Natalie, and the rest of the team is up to. I feel like this is the work, and I have air quotes there, but it's the work that's required to move our profession into the next level towards a profession that helps us all create healthy and thriving relationships with money, which then impact our families, our communities, societies, and the world, all for the better. I hope you enjoy this wonderful conversation with Jake Wagner. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. Today, my guest is Jake Wagner. Jake, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to 
hear a bit about your story, the work you're doing with phenology, which we're going to get into, the impact of your father, and all sorts of things around money and a relationship and the interior side of money that is extremely fascinating to myself. So I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Yeah, me too. I'm uh, grateful to be able to share some of this with your audience. Jake, as I, I'm a financial planner, largely trained on the exterior side. In the last four or five years, I started going down my own personal journey of seeking to understand my relationship with money, trying to make sense of all these weird emotions that I started feeling in and around money that I previously always been distracting myself from or ignoring. And as I dove into work, talking to individuals, having similar journeys of understanding their relationship with money, your father's name, Dick Wagner, came up time and time again. So much so, I thought, wow, this is incredible. And as I started to see his work and his impact, I started to understand why his name kept coming up. As we could see, and I mean, you would be one of the best to talk about, your father was certainly a pioneer. I was recently talking to Rick Kaler, and he can't speak highly enough of your father. It really seems like your father was able to embrace his own curiosity to deepen his awareness, understanding, and meaning about relationships and money for both himself and us who get a benefit from his work. I thought I would start this episode with a passage that I read from your father, and just get your perspective from a child's perspective from Dick, what you experienced as a child. So the passage is, which Dick wrote here is, by successfully addressing questions of money and your relationships with it, you're able to attend to the issues and challenges of your life with respect to survival, family, self, your personal potential, and your relationships with other humans and the planet Earth. While bringing sense of truth, meaning, beauty, purpose, and joy with respect to your life. At the end of that life, you're accountable to your own standards of life purpose and to the divine laws of the universe, whatever they may prove to be. So Jake, let's start with this simple question, which is probably not so simple. <laughs> How has addressing these questions of money and your relationship with it impacted your life? Well, it's absolutely shaped it. That's one of the places in and even some of where some of these conversations started. The, there were places in their stories that dad's talked about where he was a young financial planner in the early 80s and I was a young child. And there was some of this like wanting to understand how, how to provide for his family and what that meant and the quality of life that, that he was going to be able to make for us. And he had what we called a, a dark night of the soul, which I think is a, a great thing to make sure to do at least a good few times in your life. And, you know, one of the conclusions from that actually got him to turn to financial planning, but also to understand and just see that there was this deeper layer. And basically, one of the places that I think it really started was, you know, looking at economics and, and in an economics class, we're taught that that money is value neutral. And during this long, dark night of the soul, he went and thought about it. And you're just like, nothing could be more charged in a whole lot of ways. The, rather than something being able to be treated as neutral, it's actually so charged that economics has to treat it that way. And each of us has our own personal relationship with money. It's unique. That actually in college, I did my thesis. I'm a psychology bachelor's degree, but I did it around people's attitudes about money. Each person's values are like a fingerprint. It's the thing that'll tell you that whether like we see it as a, you know, a thing, power, you know, whether we measure it as a part of our personal wealth, whether we think it's good, whether we think it's evil, like everybody has a very individual relationship with that. And, you know, and you asked for the child's perspective and well, one, I'm 43 now, so the child part is long gone. But it was actually really also Rick and Davey Esky and Lisa Bowie and Elizabeth Jaton and actually an FPA residency that happened, which happens in Denver, where I'm born and raised. Getting to meet those folks, they came out to do FPA residency and dad wanted to go and hang out with his friends. And he's like, hey, how about you come along and join me? And really, like, dad is amazing with everything that he's teaching the world. And that is a part of what we're continuing to, to share. But learning from these other financial planners and seeing how important that was, like the role that money played in our lives, 
got and inspired both myself and my sister to really make sure to take our careers to the financial planning profession. We aren't financial planners. We're doing other stuff, but which is exploring this finality work first and foremost. And I also run a marketing agency. Like every single time we start to tap deeper into our relationship with money, it's amazing what comes up. That like, I remember being at a George Kinder seven stages money maturity workshop. And, and also I was living in Boulder at the time and working with the Integral Institute and Ken Wilbur. I've been to a lot of workshops. And some of the things I saw at Naropa were beautiful and powerful and same with Integral for sure. But some of the tears that were shared during those seven stages workshops were some of the most intense and authentic and transformative that I've seen people go through. And it'd be something just around like, okay, three siblings go to lunch. One of them's kind of broke. One of them can, you know, make sure to pay their bills. And one of them's, you know, doing really well. How do you split up the check? It's a profound question. You know, do you split it three ways? Do you have the person who can has more money take care of it? You know, and how we figure out the answers to that are unique and powerful and often unique to the situation too. They were actually called the pioneers. Those folks that I just mentioned, uh, also Gail Coleman, Rich Coleman, dad, a couple other people, that it was a group called the pioneers. I was able to attend FPA retreat in 2002 with dad when he won a call of papers. And, and that also was really a big part of it is that we had these conversations and I was a part of the integral work. And so that also means that how like spiral dynamics is being brought into money conversation. Some of this, I don't know if we need to go down right now, but it's had a profound impact on how I study money and also how my sister studies money. And her work is unique and different. We really each have our own flavor of it as well. Thank you. That was a phenomenal answer. Jake, you put a lot of doors that we can go down. But as I just sit here and think about everything you said, I just get the sense that your father had this, as I mentioned earlier, this curious mind, but he really seems to operate with compassion to go off of what you're saying, that everyone has their own money story and their own interpretation of money. But I also admire how he doesn't dismiss just how powerful money actually is. As you talked about, economics says it's neutral, but to your father, I think you would disagree <laughs> In fact, we really do disagree. That is the official stance. That you'd, yeah. and, and maybe you could share that, the one thing that he talks about how powerful money is. There's a bunch in there, but I will start. So we had a group of things called the money tenets. And so money being the most powerful and pervasive secular force on this planet. He is not getting into religion with that. What we are getting into is as you look around the room that you're in right now, as you listen to this podcast, Look out the window, maybe, because you probably won't find this answer inside, but try to find something that doesn't involve money. And even the trees in our yards, the grass that's grown, the lawnmowers to cut them, there is still money that is being used and is involved in that process. And the thing is, there's also a Zig Ziglar quote we love, which is money's not the most important thing in the world, but it is kind of up there with oxygen. You know, it's one heck of a common denominator. And so, like, we want to take it from that perspective. It's not about necessarily the accumulation and the getting of more. It's about how do we exchange value and how do we do that with our communities and what are those impacts? And again, there's a lot of corridors we can go down, you know, even just up to spending money at your local farmer market. Farmer's market can actually be like adding $20 to your local economy for every dollar you spend. You know, understanding the impact of that stuff can be huge. And those are things that we base on on our, those, that's what comes from our values and how we interact with our community. And it's a part of where that stuff starts to come in closer. And that's a part of where we start to point towards phenology. And Sean, if it's okay with you, can I share one, one of the ways that we encapsulate what this phenology stuff is? Does that Absolutely. sound good? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I just want to make an observation on something that you said that, sunk into me because this is why I'm attracted to your work and your father's work is when you read that Zig Ziglar quote, part of me was like, well, are we just trying to build more of it? But your next comment was, it's not the accumulation of more exchanging value for value within our community. And that's what really draws me to your work, the study of phonology and your father's work. So 
I, I just appreciate this recognition that money is so powerful, like that little exercise you gave us, but it's not the sole intent of the accumulation of more. So thank you. So yes, what? let's go to finology. I just had to let you know that that really spoke to me. Thank you. I really appreciate you helping me unpack this. Your car gets you someplace. You don't want to be worshiping, you know, the engine oil. Like the, the, the engine oil, it gets us there. And, and that's not necessarily like we don't want to miss the baby in the bathwater. We definitely don't want to throw it out as well. So dad and I do to Rick Kaler. Rick has a very interesting quant and also emotional mind. And a part of that is, is that he asked his dad and I were working on financial planning 3.0 what a good definition of phenology is. And he's also asked that about financial planning 3.0. Phenology, at this point, we're defining is it as how do we exchange value and how do we work with money? It's such an important thing, but we also don't want to pitch a whole value exchange into just dollars or any of the major fiat monies. You know, if you're a parent, and you've gone through or in the middle of that diaper-changing phase of your child's life. I'm a royal uncle. Natalie is the parent who's gone through this. But, you know, in the middle of the night, like, one one parent's going to elbow the other parent and say, you owe me. <laughs> what is that? What is that field? What is that place that we're in right there? And And if you are silly enough to try to account for your diaper-changing with dollars and cents, like, Good luck on your marriage. <laughs> that is that is great parenting advice. As a as a financial planner, I, I can say that I've never tried to account for the diaper change in the middle of the night. And my wife is probably happy I didn't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And another piece from dad that you can you can see him talk about it on what is phenology.org is that he talked about, you know, if we're looking at some of these other sciences, namely psychology and sociology, that if we're Looking at, if we take a box, like a cross with four boxes, and we look at the upper left-hand box, and we put psychology there, and then we go to the lower left-hand box, and we put sociology there. Psychology is about individuals, and sociology is about big numbers of people and how the law of big numbers affects us as a group. And that's what economics is study. But economics is in the lower right portion of this box where it's looking at how money works with large numbers, which is extremely important. It just has to treat money as value neutral because of the law of large numbers factors. And so he was actually inspired by uh, Sherlock Holmes. And a piece that Sherlock Holmes has about where he discovered who the killer was because the dogs didn't bark. And so that's where we call this as the dogs not barking in the Sherlock Holmes story. It was that that meant that the dogs had to know the murderer enough that the dogs didn't bark. And so it's this absence of information that helps us understand where phenology fits in in the upper right corner of this box here. And so that means that phenology is about individuals and their relationships with money and the, the connection that happens. And even that weird thing, like if you go and get lunch and hand the person a $20 bill and then stand in line and your name's called. Like, where is this, you know, where is the debt created? Where is fulfillment happening? You know, where is that giving and where is that receiving? And there's some really powerful ideas we can unpack. And and also, Sean, this is something that we have been studying. Or sorry, we haven't been studying, but we have been doing for thousands of years. And that's a part, like, one thing I'm really fascinated with right now is is kids. And that I was at this event with friends. It was a concert thing. It was a little private thing in the, up in the Oregon Gorge. There was a little girl there who was three, and she went around, and there's a bouquet of flowers. And she went around, and there was mint in it, and she gave every person in the room a little mint leaf. And at first she went around and had it smell, but, like, she's still working on a vocabulary, but she also is giving. And that's an amazing thing. You know, money is giving and receiving, but like, where does this start? And like, how can we start to codify this into a social science? That's really one of the big places for me and where I want to see this going. You know, like this is so big. It's like that elephant in the room. And am I holding on to an ear or a tail or a foot? I don't know. 
but there are some great people who are starting to explore this work with us. And it is amazing to see some of the conversations that can get unpacked as we do that. It's phenomenal. It's wonderful. This idea of creating this whole new field of study, phenology, and the way you broke up that like psychology, sociology, and economics. I really like that thinking process of, okay, there's something missing here. What is it? And like that little example you gave us when you look around your room, everything deals with money, but yet we're ignoring this, like this, this value exchange that you talk about. It makes me think of with COVID right now, we're, we're thinking more about our time and utilization. And you talked about kids and I'm a father of two young kids. And I think about time, like what is the value of staying home and having that value exchange with your kids? Like you're building foundational moments in your child's lives where you can't you can't put a, a dollar, you can't equate how much increase in their capital potential they're going to earn over a lifetime by having a formal relationship with them or a solid foundation with them. So I just really appreciate you guys really exploring the study of this relationship between human beings and money and this value exchange. What a fascinating field. I want to keep going in there, but you mentioned financial planning 3.0. So can you maybe just step backwards between or uh, state what is financial planning 1.0, 2.0, and then where we are with financial planning 3.0, the name of your father's book? Yeah, absolutely. So one, we have a couple of different ways that we can cut this up. And I'll also share that like a lot of folks don't understand exactly how embedded my dad and I were with the work that we were doing because I was very much there with the editing process and, and like a lot of the deeper ideas. And we were talking about the book and it was definitely at that point of web 2.0 and that we were just trying to think about, well, what's going to be next. That's where we started with like, what is 3.0? What is 3.0 financial planning? And I actually have a pretty, let's say complicated answer for this at this point, because Again, Rick Keeler asked for a definition. And so at one of our Nazarudin conferences, we sat down, Amy Mullen was in the room too, and we had a session on it. And, and what we came up with was how financial planning and financial planners shape culture and society. And, and I think that this is a wonderful place for this word to live. But also one of our fellows, Don St. Clair, and also Elizabeth Jatan, who's also a fellow, want to make sure that we don't narrow this in, and especially not too quickly. And there's also a really important part here that's known as, I am not a certified financial planner. I have worked with the Integral Institute. I have learned a lot about computers. I understand marketing. I understand a lot of this phenology stuff. I've been to, I've had more CE education than most financial planners have too. I love going to conferences and I love sitting in those sessions and learning how it works. And it can almost pass a 65 exam right out of the bat too. But that doesn't make me a financial planner. And so this, I'm actually asking you and your audience to help us define. Because that's the real answer is that you're the financial planner on the ground, changing your community, helping your clients understand what your relationship is. And like to back it up just a little bit into some of what we talked about for 1.0 and 2.0, 1.0, we're all fairly much in agreement is what you learn from that to be able to pass the test and be able to sit for the exam with the board. That's really what financial planning 1.0 is, is it's what you learn in school. But then you need your three years of experience and for good reason. And there's also a good reason that we have groups like the Sudden Money Institute and Money Quotient and the Kinder Institute and the fact that that's why we're now offering CE programs with what is Phenology Project as well. And this is more of some of that 2.0 stuff. And what we're doing is, how I like to think of it, is that in 1.0, you're taught how to maximize the dollar is the bottom line. And in 2.0, as we start to move towards life planning, that it's actually how to make the client's life and what is most important to the client, make that the bottom line and make that happen for them. I'd also have to say the What Is Phenology podcast I had with Carol Anderson, which is our first one, really dives nicely into this. So put it, just put phenology into your search, into your podcast search engine, it'll come. And so like, yeah, I want 
2.0 to be life planning, but there is more to it than that as well. And that's a part of what we discover and discuss on that podcast. And I invite everybody to join the discussion to help us uncover what this means as well. You know, I, I was actually listening to that episode this morning while I was on my bike and you said, I'd like to invite. So I'm taking an invitation right now. <laughs> when I hear this financial planning 3.0, I love how you guys are becoming, are not attaching yourself to a certain definition or outcome. And it seems like yourself and your father are good at that. When you talk back to the pioneers day, I remember hearing Rick Kaler say, what do you mean? There's no agenda. We're not going to go talk about something. <laughs> He's like, this doesn't make sense. <laughs> and I like your ability and your father's ability to not have that desired outcome, because as we know, that will influence and bias our thinking. But for me, financial planning 3.0 is super personal statement here because it's my story, I guess. But for me, something as simple as being okay with me and my wife have started having a coffee in the morning, working a little less, ruminating thoughts, being like, it's okay, I can sit and have a coffee with my wife before we go to work for 20 minutes. But it's like, changed everything is like before I, I had the time, but it was this constant idea of like, Oh, got to serve this client. Got to do this. Got to do this around money. Got to continue to chase money, which then allowed me to get into learning to not detach, but I guess identify why I was so reactive around money, which is deepening my money relationship to now where, I mean, I don't got this perfect at all, but I'm now able to feel money defensiveness and feel like, okay, I might respond negatively or harshly to my wife unintendedly, and that's going to cause impact in our relationship and so forth. So for me, this idea of financial 3.0 is like implementing those things into your life, what are so interconnected between like our visual visual reactions around money, but then using money as a window to understand more of ourselves and holy smokes, if you follow the breadcrumbs that money leaves around opening the door to learn more about yourself, it's it's kind of dark, scary, and messy. But the other side is really interesting. And it's beautiful. And mm-hmm. I also think there's some advantages, too, that there are schools of psychology that are about, you know, how is you're having issues with someone else in your life, that that's often a reflection of your own issues, that you're getting pissed off at them because you're actually doing the same thing and you're trying to tell yourself this. Well, the other part is, is at the end of the day, there is a conscious being over there that is making their own decisions and money has no consciousness. There is nothing there. And so it is something that we have contrived and it has game theory and rules because we've chosen it. But every single thing that pisses you off about money is something that is about you that you're trying to wrestle with. And especially like, I like something that you shared a second ago, Sean, on just that, the visceral feeling and where it's like and how it comes up and then also how it might cause relationship issue and like i'm thinking of gail coleman's work in somatic finance and if you can you mentioned that you had this feeling in your stomach you know and so if you can bring awareness to that and then think about it bring a little bit of consciousness to it maybe you cannot say that stupid thing to your wife Mm -hmm. And, (laughs) and maybe you can also hear something going on with your clients that'll allow you to be like oh there is a thing there And like be able to ask that question to uncover and that sensitivity, I think is really helpful, especially in client relationships. That word you say, sensitivity, and going back to that comment I made about what I feel from your father and yourself is this compassion, sensitivity and compassion, where I was uh, like trained against CFP, financial 1.0 and elements of 2.0 really good. But that I feel like that sensitivity and compassion was lacking because that visceral reaction I described without diving into the 3.0, the relationship side, it would be narrow-minded, stuck to the outcomes, being like, okay, you're the financial planner, Sean. You're taking care of this family so that we can retire happily at 65. You're going to be rigid. You're not going to be empathetic over someone else's feelings. And you're doing this for the good of the family which is really dysfunctional when you actually unpack it. Or I think that's, that's hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's true where it comes to like, and uh, you know, I know, I know that that's not a unique experience just to myself, especially when you have that body of knowledge as a financial planner or, or any body of knowledge where we can get rigid in our thinking. And I think what you guys are inviting us is to dive into that rigidity to see what we can learn about ourselves in this 3.0. 
I think it's also about accepting the work in progress factor with it. You know, as much as I love this work and I love to study and go and dive into this, it can still be really scary to have these types of conversations with my fiance and the like, no breaking down the budget things. And even like trying to have those conversations can be hard. So don't like, we can shy away. And even when you think you're good at this stuff, like a part of what is so beautiful about money is that if you actually really look at it, there's, it, it gives you this true reflection back and you can't deny it. I really like pieces of our lives like that that they can help us understand how we're dysfunctional and give us the ability and a tool to be able to actually possibly fix it. And I think we have a long ways to go when it comes to especially ourselves with our collective relationship with money. But I think do think we have to do it. I think we have to do it as a species. And I also think we have to do it so that we can make sure to have the right relationship with our planet. That to me, at the end of the day, that something I've said for years is that there's actually only one bank and we're sitting on her. And the, basically what's been going on is we've been pulling out and drawing on a line of credit. And some of those are pulling different reserves. It's a different thing to take metal out of a mountain or to take coal out of a mountain than to have a, like, you know, understand a tree growth cycle. But now there are people who are looking at, like, how carbon and wood here in Oregon, how we're actually taking carbon out. Um, and are we over 30 years and stuff like that? Because the thing is, is that money ultimately is how we exchange value. And that there's three rules to it. it. It stores value, it exchanges value, and those are the opposite of each other. And then it's like, it's called uh, rules of account, which is basically like when I look at a thermometer, I read the Fahrenheit side. When you look at the thermometer, you read the Celsius side. Water boils at the same time place, it freezes at the same place. So that's a big part of it. You know, basically, if we can't understand how to actually have this way of exchanging value like be symbiotic with this planet. I, I'm, I'm now off on my hippie dippy end. The dad doesn't necessarily, he is not on this train. Real worried that we're in the middle of as we're recording this. It'll take a while for the release to happen, but it is really hot. It's one of the hottest days of the year here in lots of places in the States. And I'm guessing Canada too. That's somewhere this is going to come home. And their only way to ultimately fix some of the stuff that's going on with our planet is that we need to have a money system that is in reciprocity and exchanges properly with our planet. And otherwise, like, I think she won't, she doesn't care. We are a blink or less than a blink of the time that she's been around. So this is up to us. You know, we can decide to be in a good and healthy relationship with the environment around us, or we can think that we can, you know, take black viscous stuff from underneath the ground and take mountains and burn it and put it up in the air and think that's not going to change things. It's, it's To me, it's a closed system. And, and the only answer is the two most important things I've thought in my life is one, how do we have air of our planet be in a way that it doesn't make all the weird weather that we're experiencing now? Or how to have a relationship with money and help us understand what this money stuff is in a deeper way so that we can hopefully do that part of the relationship too. So I chose that second one, and here we are today. Thank you for that. You know, you talk about these money systems and this vision you have of reciprocity. What would that vision look like? I hear you saying it's maybe stemmed through our relationships with money. I have a quote that I think is from your father. It could be from you, but it's our money lives can only be as good as our relationship with money. So it's making me think about the system we aspire to have with that embodies this reciprocity can only be as good as our internal relationships with money. Is that where you're kind of going with this thinking? It is. And there's also a place where I definitely have not connected the dots. And I would love to. And I think that possibly they're probably some video game designer. Because if you look at video games, that's one of the places where you'll see multiple currencies existing concurrently. And we need someone who can actually do some of that and have one currency that stores value like gold. One currency that exchanges value, think like cigarettes in a prison, you know, something like that. It's okay to exchange until it's burnt and then it's gone. And even then it gets staler over time. That's more of a demurge currency sort of a place to come from. And by the way, this part of my knowledge is from Bernard Leotower, who wrote The Future of Money, was a professor at the Naropa Institute and was the designer of the euro. 
And so there's a bit he passed just to the beginning of COVID from natural causes. And um, I wish I could ask him a bunch of these questions because I think he'd have a great answer. The things I do know are we've been drawing out this line of credit from the planet and we are now smart enough to figure out how to actually manage that. And so for survival reasons, we need to have that work. The other thing I know is that our ultimate exchange of value is the days of our lives. And that if you do the math... I love to say we have 10,000 minutes every week. It's 10,080, but it's really like, you know, that hour will go somewhere, you know, it will. And so like, we're all equally rich with 10,000 minutes each week. How are we going to choose to use that to make this place the place that we want it to be? And that, you know, a part of what's really how dad inspired me with this work is to some of the other things is that financial planning is the ultimate liberal arts profession that you know, that this is one of the most important professions that exists, that what you are doing is you're on the front lines. You're the people out there actually changing people's relationship with money. And that is how we start to actually embrace this problem and start to find a solution. In thinking about your father's career trajectory, he started out in the life insurance industry, I believe. Everybody did in those everybody days. Everybody did in those days. And, you know, we have these beliefs about <laughs> that industry for, for valid or non-valid reasons that that industry is not going to save the world. <laughs> what I mean by some people have like beliefs, they may have had a bad encounter or I forget what movie. There's a movie about life insurance reps. I can't remember. It's all about the incentive pattern. With any of these things, it's all about the incentive pattern about how you get paid. And that includes AUM. But like, I remember seeing Michael Kitsis at the XY conference in the fall. And one of the things he was actually able to demonstrate was the crossover point. And the, you know, commission sales does earn more up front, but also a financial planner has one of the best lifetime account values that you can possibly have. The, you know, 10,000 ish dollars a year for every million dollars of AUM. You know, go and do, you know, take out your HP-12C and do the math on that. It's, uh, you know, depends on what you put out there, but could be a million point two for over, you know, like I think 10 years when I did that math last. Like, it's pretty amazing. Oh, no, that's a lot by 10. But it's pretty amazing the value that you can create with someone in a long-term relationship and that, that the problem is still really there, Sean. That we're lucky enough to be in Canada and the States, but there's a group called WFAN and a, a man named Partha Iringar and a woman I've been talking to who got to FBA retreat named Chaitali. And they're in India, which is a billion people market, a billion people. And all of the industry, all the regulations are going towards commission sales right now. And they're trying to bring fee only to India and help people understand that. And Bartha's is also trying to help train more women as well. And I think these are the issues that dad would really be taking on if he was around today is that inequity and that this is a global issue. Mm-hmm. We all have this relationship with money. And especially like when we look at India, they have the most billionaires per capita as well. I mean, there's, it's a place where it's really important. And if we on that 3.0 level let that culture stay with, you know, traditional chauvinism and really like commission-based sales, like the incentive patterns. And as you let that happen over years, we're, we're probably not going to like the result. And so like back to life insurance, I have met fiduciaries who are fee-based and they recommend good, solid fee-based products. They explain to their clients what commissions they're making and are upfront about that. The clients sign off on it, and I believe that they are fiduciaries. I've seen only people be go to jail. You know, Bernie Madoff was a fiduciary. So, like, this is one of the things I was talking about with Don St. Clair, where he was blowing my mind the other week. And that, yeah, that basically fiduciary is, it's the ability to take someone to jail because they're a fiduciary if they break the law. But you as a representative, especially you and your show, you know, it's about, I am a person to trust, and trying to put that in there and like feel that trust. And I just, you know, we want to also make sure to like, there will always be robbers and cheaters and thieves till the end of time. It sucks. It is true. And so like, that's a part of like, if you are a true fiduciary, I, as a marketer, I still hold myself out as fiduciary. You know, it's important to me. These are the real values I was raised with. I believe in this stuff and we need to make sure that people understand what that means. And 
And if someone does violate those words, they're punished all the more, too. Like, that is something, this is on us to be able to understand how to be a fiduciary and how to have our communities trust what that is, because they trust you and your work, and they benefited from you and your work. Thanks for that. And, and you know, me bringing that up, I want, because I want to highlight as, like, for myself, a young, a young guy getting into the industry, life insurance was the road I came in. Someone's like, hey, you can do this. And, and the intent of me bringing that up was that I've heard your father talk about his approach through life insurance, but his ability, I feel, to think and sit and think that I've heard through different presentations and his view on financial planning is really, I think, what's allowed him to evolve and helps us, other individuals, evolve into this bigger level thinking. And, and you bring up some really good points. And I agree with you is that you can give someone a tool, but if the culture behind them is still a corrupt liar, cheater, and thieves, like you said, it doesn't matter to me what tool, AUM, commission, they're still going to cheat people. What I want to make the observation is that your father has evolved from, you know, from the 80s thinking of just one silo life insurance on a policy to like his open mindset again to really shifting the culture is what I see. And I think that's where the intentions, like you guys are inviting people in to change their intention. And then sure, the tools do matter. But to your point, I think the intentions, those are where I feel like you guys are really targeting with this financial planning 3.0. That can go or serves to work towards, I think it's chapter five, within chapter five of your book, where you guys talk about financial planning can actually save the world. And I remember reading that that heading and I'm like, hmm, but you read the chapter, you're like, okay, this makes sense. So maybe explain a bit more about how this financial 3.0, it relates back to this relationship like you talked about with the earth and how we're taking care of it. But how in your belief and your father's belief, can financial planning be one of the most sought after professionals that can, to use his words, save the world? Man, now you make me wish I'd skim the book right before we... Uh, talk. Oh, okay. It's all Sorry. in there, but no, that's okay. It's just fine. It's because we all have this individual relationship with money that it's because it's this subconscious issue that needs to be brought up into conscious space. And that really it is the role of the financial planner to do that. The dad would bring up the example of two other professions your therapist, and your priest. Sorry for anyone who has pastor family out there, and I have pastor family on both sides of my family, and it's it's a hard spot because you're asking for tithing, which is ostensibly begging. You know, it's not that doesn't have those connotations, but like pastor needs to keep up with the Joneses as the Joneses are helping them be able to have the money to live. It's just a really hard place for that, and so it's prime to have its own money issues. And same with therapists, uh, that they have their own clumption and their own way of being, not having figured out their own money stuff too. You know, like I'm a part of the Integral Institute, as I've mentioned, and they've had some pieces coming out about money, but like nothing gets anywhere near to the real core, like the work that we're talking about even just in this conversation. And so that's why I think financial planning will save the world is because you're the right people for the job. And one of the things that dad said, and he said this to a bunch of folks that um, have probably helped teach you, you sure look like you're the perfect person in the world to be doing that job. Susan Bradley, you understand, you just keyed into how these trans- this transition stuff is so important for people, you know, and you want to help the world with that. I think you're exactly the right person to do it. Go and do it. Man, I love what Susan has come up with in the world. and And she's really helped some people, including like, helping, you know, pro athletes understand how to tax leverage the fact that they probably have their greatest earnings for three years of their lives. That's some of how is, you know, like, like special needs planning. If someone gets into a car accident and they win a $20 million settlement, but they're going to be in a chair for the rest of their life and that chair costs $15,000 or something, I have no idea. You know, how do you actually set up a financial plan so that this person can have a life that's good? And also, by the way, what an honor to be able to help people in those ways. So that's why. Super fascinating. I have so many notes that I I thought we'd get into, but that is okay because I'm channeling my inner dick and letting go of any outcome I thought about. So the study of phenology really 
looking at the interior work, like you talked about, the study of human value and exchange, money and human value exchange, our relationships with money, none of it's easy. (laughs) And this interior work is often, unfortunately, and I know this is a term that you and your father both don't like, is referred to the soft skills, which has an applied notion of easy that's all, actually, is that it has the implied notion of easy. I have yeah. no attachment on soft. Oh, okay. Soft is complicated. Making something the right version of soft, you know, is like a crash pad or something like that. You know, the right, you know, a good pillow. Right version of soft is, is has a lot of nuance to it. I feel like people refer, especially in the financial plan, this is, this is purely... My my thoughts, so disregard as you please. But as I was reading that throughout the book, it's like, I hear that in the financial planning side. Oh, that's the soft skills. But I really think it's because we're afraid to go there because we know it's actually hard. And to your point, yeah, making a soft landing is a difficult thing. And I think our profession needs it because we're really dominated by males, which have has its own issues in terms of we're the man of the house. We know how to handle finances where we can use a whole lot of soft compassion and skills. So from your perspective, how does embracing the soft side or focusing on this inner side of money really help to tenderize our relationships with money so that we can really find that or live with some of the peace that comes with having a healthy relationship with our money? Well, I would say, one, there is a great financial therapist association out there. And having someone who you might want to work with in some of those ways could be a great idea and also something possibly you want to look at for adding to your own toolkit. But the reason why I start there is because there is a point in that client relationship where like the client meeting room is a sacred space that is a vault to not be impacted. But there is also that is the same with a therapy space and other places like it. And you as a financial advisor might see something happen or it's like, oh, okay, that might be a place for a trained therapist. Because unless you're a trained therapist, I suggest that you avoid the liability if nothing else. (laughs) But you can bring in this soft stuff, these soft skills, and a lot of it involves studying the nonverbal behavior, I think would be something that would be a strong thing to bring in. I definitely suggest groups like the Sudden Money Institute and the Money Money Potion Group. And Carol Anderson's now doing a bunch of really interesting nonprofit educational research into some of this too. So I really like where she's going with it. I think the most important thing to do is just to make sure that you feel comfortable with the conversation that you're having with your client. That a lot of as you get into the real deep conversations with financial planners, as my partner and I talk with our financial planner, covering some of the numbers can actually happen pretty quickly. And then understanding the real priorities is what can take a while and also might be a good reason to go out for lunch. You know, stuff like that where it's building relationship. And, you know, it's about how do you want to have that touch point land and and also understanding what your uh, Dunn's number is going to be for your business. This is a big part of what Michael Kitts has talked about again at XY in the fall and just if you're going to have, and this is a part why dad, this is why dad split whiz from Sharky House, Wagner and Javer and left that fur. Cause there's a lot that they did that was amazing with that firm, but they also, they wanted to help a lot of people. Part of what that meant was to productize more and streamline more. And that just means that some of this, this stuff is, is harder to do. There's just less time for it because there's more relationships. So if that's where you're at, understand what you can do and how you can really achieve realistic results. I don't want to tell you to go and take, if you have to manage 250 client relationships, I really hope that your business is picking up the check, if nothing else. That's, that's a whole lot of lunch. Um, but more likely, you know, I've also worked with planners who might have, I mean, some planners have like eight or 10 clients. You know, it depends on how, you know, but they might be eight-figure clients. You know, it might be that you want to have 30 to 100. You know, it depends on what sort of relationship you want to have and what kind of service you want to provide. And there is the option of bringing in other service providers who are more specialists with some of those skills and having a relationship with them. And that's what Rick does, is that he has certain people, he is a master with these things, and he also has certain folks that he brings in. A lot of those people are a part of our conversation, for sure. 
Well, Jake, thank you for this today. You clearly have a passion to continuing on your legacy and your father's legacy with this work. Tell us a bit more about your project, Phenology, how people can can participate in the wonderful work you're doing. Uh, I know you guys have monthly or sorry, quarterly, I believe, webinars. So maybe just fill the listeners in with what you're up to right now. Absolutely. So one, go to whatisphenology.org. That is the, the current main website. And there you can see a lot of our different body of knowledge. We have a lot of things that are free. Um, you can also look us up in podcasts in your podcast directory just by looking for phenology. But that's the podcasts have been taking a backseat lately to a series from that we've been doing called the Money Mind Benders. And the Money Mind Benders are conversations that are memes, like little one sentence conversation starters that are often from our group of fellows. So the fellows are Susan and Michael and Amy and a lot of those people. You can see them on there, but people who learned from that and their work carries a kernel of truth of phenology inside of it. And so we have those folks come in for other presentations that we do. So we have the mind benders that you can sign up for and get a weekly newsletter. I see it on Facebook. Every month we take one of those and we have an hour-long free webinar conversation about that. And we have an events link on our website so that you can get to that and sign up for those calls. And then once a quarter, what we're doing right now is having generally three presenters come in for for most of the day's work. It's still enough time so that you can make sure to check your email and do all the other stuff. But basically, it's most of the day. And we've had like six hours of CE credit for planners to come in and join us for these seminars. And that's really where the real thick of our conversation is occurring. We're calling the Phrenology Forums or the CE Day Phrenology Forums. It has been an incredible set of conversations and an honor to be able to help hold that container. Understanding the nature of giving and receiving, diving into somatic finance, Don St. Clair talking about our ontological relationships with money, which is just profound work. And I have, I suggest that you join us. And again, www.whatisphenology.org. Well, thank you for that. And we'll link to all those in the show notes. And yeah, once again, thanks for joining me for the conversation. And thank you for the good work you're doing. You too, Sean. I really appreciate everything that you're doing on this podcast. And it's been a pleasure to join you. Without a top, my wealth is measured and now I spend my time. But now I write freedom story with every breath in Money is not the boat of life, it's just the wind.